You know, so many wonderful uh, characters in the Bible that we study their lives and we, we learn from them. And some uh, Bible characters are easier to relate to than others. Most of you probably have a favorite character in the Bible. Some are really hard to kind of just imagine what it would have been like to be them, though. Like Moses is one of those guys. It's hard to imagine, to, to be Moses, to, to have uh, parted a sea, to have led millions of people through the desert, to climb up a mountain to have a conversation with the holy God. It's kind of hard to relate. You might think, what do I have in common with a military general like Joshua, who led armies into battle? Or how can I possibly understand what the life of, of, of Esther must have been like, this refugee who became a queen? Or you read about Solomon's life, and you're like, oh, all the money and 700 wives and 300 concubines. What kind of a life was that? I think the hardest characters in the Bible to relate to, for me, though, are the prophets. Prophets are a little weird, aren't they? They're a little bit strange. The Ezekiel laid on his side, you know this, or maybe you don't because it's kind of a weird Bible story, but Ezekiel laid on his side for 390 days as a prophetic act. The prophet Ezekiel laid on his side. Now, I tend to sleep on my side, but I couldn't lay on my side for 390 days. Elijah, the prophet Elijah, had his food delivered to him by a bird. That's like the original food delivery system. Bird bringing food to Elijah. And probably the prophet that is the most difficult for me to identify with is Daniel. Because Daniel, according to Daniel chapter 1, he willingly gave up good food to eat vegetables. Like, I don't, I don't, Daniel is a mystery to me. <laughs> Thankfully for the norm, normal person, there is a person in the Bible who I think we can all relate to, and his name is Peter. Uh, Peter was a follower of Jesus, and Peter was always saying the wrong thing at the wrong time. Anybody relate? He was always putting his foot in his mouth. He was, he was impetuous. He was getting rebuked. I mean, Jesus called him Satan. That's not a good thing. Jesus calls you Satan. You're, that's not good. Peter was warned by Jesus that he was going to do something. Peter swore he would not do it, and within 10 hours, he did it. Now, most of us are like, I could at least hold out for 10 hours if somebody predicted I was going to do something. And so, thankfully for the rest of us who can't relate to Moses and Esther and Abraham and all the heroes in the Old Testament, we have Peter. Peter. Now, 30 years after Jesus walked the earth, this same Peter, this Peter who was messing up, getting it wrong all the time, he wrote some really important letters. And we have them in the Bible. And he wrote letters to mostly Gentile believers who gathered together in churches that were scattered all over Asia Minor, which is present day the country of Turkey. Now, a courier would have taken this letter and taken it from the first church and read it, the second church to church. It was kind of like a, a letter that got passed on. And Peter is writing to churches who are experiencing varying degrees of suffering and persecution for their faith. And we know from history it's about to get a lot worse under the reign of an emperor named Nero, where eventually Christians will be killed for their faith. And it's into this world that, Paul, that Peter is writing these letters. Now, the ESV Study Bible says that the theme of 1 Peter, which is the book that we're looking at this morning, is this. Those who persevere in faith while suffering persecution should be full of hope, for they will certainly enjoy end-time salvation since they are already enjoying God's saving promises here and now 
through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. So here's what Peter is saying. I know that you're suffering. I know that you're being persecuted. I know that you're being isolated. I know that culture is judging you and society is, uh, is alienating you. I know all of that ha- is happening, but you have the hope of the future hope. At the, at the end of times, you have the hope of heaven, but more than that, you can experience that hope here and now. You don't have to wait. And so this is the hope that Peter is writing. He's encouraging and exhorting these first century believers to be the church, which we're defining as the people of God, saved by the power of God for the purposes of God. And in 1 Peter chapter 2, and this is where we're going to be this morning if you want to turn there. In 1 Peter chapter 2, he's helping them think through what does it look like to be a church that matters, to be a church that matters, to be a church that means something, to be a church that makes a difference. And so what he's saying here is that if you're going to be a church that matters, two things have to be true of you. You have to be different from the world around you, but you also have to be making a difference in the world around you. Did you catch that? You have to be different from the world around you, but you also have to be making a difference in the world around you. And the truth is, there are some churches that do one or the other, but don't do both. And they're not mattering in the way that they should. There's some churches who are very different from the world around them, but they're so different that they're out of touch with the world around them. They can't reach people. They're, they're self-righteous. They're holier than thou. They, they think that they're better than all those people out there. And they, they're worried that they're going to be stained by friendships with people who don't believe what they believe. And so they distance themselves from people who believe differently than them. And in their desire to be different, they're not making a difference. And then you have other churches who are very determined to make a difference, so they're doing all sorts of wonderful things in the community and all sorts of things that we should applaud and, and, and be grateful for, but they're, they're actually no different than a social club. They're, they're, there's no distinguishing mark on them as the people of God, saved by the power of God for the purposes of God. So to be a church that matters this morning, listen, we need both. We need to be marked as those who are different, but we also need to be making a difference. We need both of those things. What a sad thought to be a church that doesn't matter. What a sad, terrible thought to be a church that doesn't make a difference. One of the worst things, one of the worst feelings in your life would be to get to the end of your life and look back and realize you, you, you climbed the wrong ladder. You got to the top of the ladder, but it's the wrong one. And as a church, the last thing we want to do is just be busy and active and gathering and doing things and not thinking through what does it mean to be the church that matters. And so in this passage in 1 Peter chapter 2, we're going to learn three things about the church that matters, three different things. And the first thing that we learn from Peter here is that the church that matters has a new appetite. The church that matters has a new appetite. Look at how Peter says this in the first three verses of 1 Peter chapter 2. He says, so put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. Like newborn infants long for pure spiritual milk, that by it you may grow up into salvation. And verse three, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. The church that matters has a new appetite. And in those three verses that we just read, Peter shows us three really important things. He shows us what the old appetite looked like, He shows us what the new appetite should look like, and he shows us how to change our appetite. 
So let's look at the old appetite. He says it right at the beginning. He says these five words. Did you catch them? Malice, deceit, hypocrisy, envy, slander. He says, put those things away. Leave those things behind. If you're going to be a church that matters, you can't be known for those things. Those things cannot be characteristics of your community or of your lives. Now, what do those five words mean? Malice is just a broad term for any sort of evil or wickedness. That's malice. Deceit is deception, of course, but it's more than deception. It's when you use your craftiness and your cunningness uh, improperly. It's basically when you use the gift and the skill that you have to manipulate people and manipulate situations to get what you want. That's deceit. He's saying there's still people in the church who are doing that. And they're not doing it outside of the church walls. They're doing it inside of the church walls. They're manipulating people and they're manipulating situations to try and get what they want, whether things being their way or more power or more control. Hypocrisy. What's hypocrisy? I mean, that's a word we still hear a lot. A lot of people don't come to church because they say the church is filled with hypocrites. Well, let me tell you what it is and what it isn't. Hypocrisy is pretending to have beliefs or qualities that you know you don't have. Here's, but hypocrisy is not imperfection. Is that good news this morning? Hypocrisy is not imperfection. You might say that you believe Jesus and you're trusting in Jesus for your salvation, and you still might go lose your temper in traffic after church. Doesn't mean you're a hypocrite. It means that you're in process. It means that the Spirit is still at work in your life. Hypocrisy is when you pretend to be something you know that you are not. It's intentional. What is envy? Envy is when you resent someone else's success. You can't be happy for others. You can't rejoice with those who rejoice. You envy other people's possessions. You say, if only I had that. They don't deserve that. Why would they get that? Slander's a term we're still familiar with because it's a legal term, but slander is words falsely spoken with the intent of damaging someone else's reputation, trying to hurt somebody else with your words. And so Peter is saying, that's the old appetite. Put those things away. Do not desire those things any longer or do not desire the things that make you act in that way. And when Peter uses the, the, Greek, the Greek word there, put away, there's actually a word picture there. Put away means to take off any clothes you don't need for the task you're about to do. You've watched the swimmers, right? The Olympics. They're not wearing a lot of clothes. If they're wearing any less clothes, it couldn't be broadcast on television. I mean, they, they wear as little as possible so that nothing will slow them down. Same thing with the track and field athletes. They wear as little as possible so that nothing will slow them down. And this is what Peter is saying to the church. Take off anything that isn't necessary so it won't slow you down. Put away these old appetites. And, and Paul says it very, a similar thing in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 1. He says, lay aside everything that hinders you and the sin that so easily entangles you. So Paul doesn't just say lay aside sin. He says also, also, anything that hinders you, whether it's sin or not. Not everything that slows us down is sin. We know that, right? And so Peter is saying, that's your old appetite. A lot of times we, we, we look at our lives and we take stock of who we are and we look at our behavior and we look at our, our, our activities and we say, what things do I need to put away? And the question we tend to ask is this, is it sin? Is it wrong? And if it's wrong, I'll put it away. Recently, I heard a pastor in Minnesota named John Piper say, the question we should be asking ourselves is not this. We shouldn't be asking ourselves, is it wrong? But we should be asking ourselves, does it help me run? Does it help me run? Is it wrong? You're still gonna keep on all sorts of things that slow you down. But we, as, as, as the church, as the people of God, we need to be asking ourselves a totally different question. Does this help me run? Does this help me go faster? Or does this hinder me? 
Does this slow me down? That's the old appetite, things that slow us down. What's the new appetite? Well, uh, Peter here switches to the metaphor of a baby. It says like newborn infants long for pure spiritual milk. I've had, we've had three little girls in our home, so I, I kind of know how this works. What's amazing about how God has created the human body is that everything an infant needs is provided in the milk that God has given to the mother. I mean, it's, it's amazing. There is not a nutritional need that an infant has that isn't provided in that milk. In the same way, Peter is saying, you don't have a single need in your life that isn't provided through things like the word, scripture, prayer, coming together, gathering. Everything you need to grow into salvation has been provided for you by Jesus. And so long for those things, long for his word, long for his presence, long to be with his people. Here's the other thing I've learned about having little kids in the house, and there's some little babies in, in the house this morning. We're so excited to see them. And moms and dads of, of newborns, you know this well, babies need milk all the time. I mean, they don't care what time of night it is. If they're longing for milk, they're gonna let you know. And you gotta do something. Two in the morning, they want milk, you gotta give them milk, right? Because they need it all the time. They need it on a regular basis. They don't just need it once every couple hours. They don't just, uh, well, actually, that is probably what they need it. Once every couple, they don't need it, they don't need it twice a day. They don't need it once a day. They don't need it once a week. They need it all the time. I was in Long Island in Manhattan this uh, past week for some meetings for my job. And I was sitting with a pastor, and he said to me, uh, I asked him about someone in his church that I knew. And he said, you know, she's kind of, he used the term flaky. She's kind of gone a little flaky on us. I said, well, what do you mean? She says, she says she's not getting fed. She's not getting fed at the church. That's what she's saying. She's a mature Christian. She's been in Christ for a long time. And she's saying that she's not getting fed. You know what Peter, I think, would say to her based on what he is teaching us here? If you sit around all week waiting to get fed, you're going to starve. If you're a mature believer, you know what you do? You feed yourself. You got to be a self-feeder. Can you imagine going to lunch Sunday afternoon and you're just eating like a crazy person? Everybody's like, what is wrong with you? Like, oh, I don't eat all week. I only eat on Sunday. It's the only day of the week I eat. Eventually, you're going to get sick. You're going to die. People are going to say, you can't live this way. But there are Christians, there are churchgoers who live this way. They come to church to get fed. And the rest of the week, what are you doing? If you come in here starving to be fed, you're doing something wrong as a believer. Feed yourself on a regular basis. Be in the word. There's really less excuse today than ever because you can go listen to a podcast of great preaching from all over the world now. Find ways to feed yourself. Be a self-feeder. You know what? If you're a self-feeder, that's gonna help you come in here not just looking to be fed, but ready to give out. Ready to give out. So we don't just show up to take like we talked about last week, but we show up to give. I was listening to a podcast on the airplane recently. Craig Grishel, who's the founding pastor of a church called Life Church in Oklahoma, which now has 28 locations all over the country and thousands and thousands of members. He, he was talking about one of the values of their church, and I loved it so much. I, I want you to see this. It'll be on the screen for you. One of their values is this. We are spiritual contributors, not spiritual consumers. Come on. We're spiritual contributors. We're not spiritual consumers. The church does not exist for us. We are the church and we exist for the world. That's a totally different mindset. The challenge is, is that in every other area of life besides the church, we do go in to consume. 
we do go in to get ours. And even in our workplaces, ultimately, we're going to get paid and we're going to get what we've earned. Church is the place that we come into every week that resets our heart and reminds us, you're not a, spirit, you, you're not a spiritual consumer. You shouldn't just come to consume. You should come to contribute. And if you starve yourself all week, you're going to come here looking to consume. And that's where you have people saying very unbiblical things like, it doesn't meet my needs. I'm not being fed. Church doesn't exist to meet your needs. Church doesn't exist to necessarily feed you, although those are parts of what the church does. The church exists for us to gather around the person and work of Jesus Christ so that we can be sent back out. It's a new appetite. Well, how do we change our appetites? Peter says that here too. Right at the end of verse three, he says, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. This is the key. This is the key. When Peter says this, you know he's quoting the Old Testament. He's quoting Psalm 34. And anytime you see a quote from the Old Testament, you would do well to go back and actually read the original context. Because most likely, I was reading a commentator, and they said most likely when Peter quotes Psalm 34, it means that he's been meditating on that psalm for the last couple of weeks. Isn't that a neat thought? Peter's been thinking about Psalm 34, and so now it comes out in his letter. So I went back and I read Psalm 34. Can I highlight some of the things that Psalm 34 says about God? It says that God delivers you from all of your fears. God saves you out of your troubles. God encamps around those who fear him. And it says that those who seek the Lord lack for no good thing. And with those truths resonating in your heart, it's so easy to say, have you tasted and seen? that the Lord, he's good. And until you've tasted of the Lord's goodness, you're gonna have the old appetites. The only way to get the new appetite is to taste something wonderful, the Lord's goodness. Just in your seat right now, just reflect upon his goodness to you. Who are you to deserve his forgiveness, his faithfulness? He called to you. He, he pulled you out of a muddy pit. He set your feet on a solid rock. He has sealed you with his spirit. He is sustaining you for the day of his return so that you might be with him. This is the God that we serve. Taste of his goodness. Taste of his goodness. When I go to a, a wedding reception, um, often wedding receptions are set up with, with buffets, right? They set up a buffet and they release you a table at a time to go get food. And so, but before that, there's sometimes there's like an hors d'oeuvre hour or kind of a mingling time. And I kind of have a strategy that I've developed about wedding receptions. And my strategy is this. During the hors d'oeuvres, I go and I very casually scout out the buffet. And what I really want to see is what's at the end of the buffet, right? Because what's at the end of the buffet usually? The carving station, the best, right? So I want to see what's at the end. What's the best? And I go to look. Is it, is it prime rib? Is it roast beef? Is it ham? Is it turkey? And I kind of mentally file away what's at the end of the buffet line. And then when they finally call my table's number and I get up and I grab my plate, which is always way too small. I don't know why they give us these little plates. These little small plates. I want a tray. They give us these little plates, and you begin to go through the line. You know what it helps me do knowing that the prime rib is down there? It helps me pass things by. Things that look okay, you know, I walk by and say, okay, so there's a salad here, which I would heat if I was a rabbit, but I'm going to keep going. And so I keep going and there's potato salad and there's everything. And then they get to the bread. Now the bread's where they try to trick you because bread fills you up. You can't fill up on bread if there's meat down there. And so there's bread and then there's different things. And, and as I get closer, I'm always saving a big, big spot on my plate because I know what's, what's coming. 
But if I don't know what's coming, then you know what happens? Everything looks good. And until you've tasted and seen that the Lord is good, everything else is going to look good. Everything else. Everything else is going to seem like, I th- oh, I, I need that person's approval. That's good for me. I need that pleasure. That will satisfy me. And you start filling your life up with those things. You got to look ahead. See the Lord's goodness that is both a part of your life now, but it's also coming at the end of time. His goodness revealed to us as he raptures us and returns us to heaven someday. So how do we change? If you're struggling to put things away, if you're struggling to leave things behind, if you're struggling to change your appetite, then you look at Christ and you taste of his goodness, okay? So the church that matters has a new appetite. Secondly, the church that matters has a sure foundation. Uh, Peter is, this text is a little difficult to preach because Peter keeps switching his metaphors. He's all over the place with different metaphors, and now he switches to the metaphor of a physical structure, a building. Let's just look at what he says here in verses four through eight. Peter says, as you come to him, talking of Jesus, a living stone rejected by men, rejected by men. Jesus was rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious. Verse five, you yourselves like living stones. He's now using this metaphor and he's extending it to you. Jesus was a living stone. You now as part of his body are living stones. You're being built up. You're being built in into a spiritual house. He's saying your life is a part of something bigger than you. Spiritual house to be a holy priesthood to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in Scripture, Behold, he's calling the Old Testament, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone, chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him, whoever believes in Jesus, will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe... The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Jesus, who was rejected by those he came to save, is now the foundation of the church, the cornerstone by which we are built and set. And verse, the final verse here, verse 8 says, it's a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to. Now, Peter is teaching us here that as the church... And if we're going to be a church that matters, if we're going to be a church that stands the test of time, we need to realize we have a sure foundation. Your life has a steady foundation. Things may be shaking around you, but your foundation is sure. And Jesus is that cornerstone. And that cornerstone would be the capstone. It's the, or or, sorry, it's not the capstone, but the cornerstone is the last stone or the first stone that's placed. And then all other stones are placed in relation to it. The capstone was the last stone. So the cornerstone, Jesus is really both, but the cornerstone is laid and then every other stone that is laid is laid and set up with complete deference to the cornerstone. And this, this text gives us a beautiful picture of Jesus that although he was rejected by men, he was precious in God's eyes. And Peter is saying, it's true for you too. Now remember who he was writing to. Gentile believers who were leaving their pagan ways, and there actually were some Jewish believers in these churches too, who had left Judaism and now had become Christians. And you know what happened when you made a change like that? It wasn't just a spiritual change, it was a cultural change. You were rejected by your family. You were rejected. It would be much like today a Muslim converting to Christianity. It's not just religion, it's life. And it's the same thing here. So Peter's saying, I know some of you are feeling rejected, but so was Jesus. Jesus, our cornerstone, was rejected. But in God's eyes, he's chosen and precious. And guess what? So are you. 
in God's eyes, you've been chosen and you're precious. This is a helpful reminder of the church. He says, you yourselves like living stones are being built up into a spiritual house. Now, some people don't like this metaphor because they say, well, I don't, I don't, I'd rather just kind of be a living stone over here by myself. And I'll just kind of visit this wall every now and then. And I'll visit this wall and this structure. But when you see this, this guy here is building this stone wall, this stone, stone structure, what, what strikes you as you look at the proximity of these stones to one another? Do they get to choose where they are? Do they get to choose which stones are depending on them? Do they get to choose which stones they are dependent upon? Do they get to say, ah, it's too close. It's too close, no touchy. I don't, I don't, I don't, I don't, I don't like these stones so close. And we say this sometimes, we say, well, I'd like to be a part of a church, but I just don't like people depending on me. How are you gonna be built in? I like to be a part of a church, but I don't like depending on people. How are you gonna be built into something that's bigger than you. I want to be a part of church, but I like to be a part of church from a distance. Not, not close, not invested, not intimate. I want to protect myself. Well, the metaphor that Peter presents us with here takes all of those options off the table and says you can do that, but then you're not really part of the church. Being part of the church means you depend on others. It means other people depend on you. And it means that there's a closeness that there is a togetherness. And you know what keeps the wall together? You know what keeps a stone structure together is not simply the stones that you see, but it's the foundation that you can't see. And what keeps the church strong and keeps the church steady and has kept the church sure for 2,000 years is the foundation, the cornerstone, Jesus Christ, because Jesus is building his church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. It's his church. It's not your church. It's not my church. It's not the church council's church. It's Jesus' church and he's building it. And you know, it, it keeps us steady in difficult times in our lives. There are people in our church who are going through very difficult times. At the end of service, you're going to have the opportunity to pray if that's you. But we, we've heard news even this week of people who are learning medical situations that we need to be prayerful about and consider. They're, they're, they're struggling. And the church, because we're built on the foundation of Jesus Christ, should provide stability for them and strength for them. Even as our church has walked through this season of transition and what some people would describe as instability, you know, the number one question I get when I travel around the state and talk to other Assemblies of God pastors about the church is, how bad has it gotten? How many people have left? What's it look like now? Because that's what often happens in transition and change. And praise be to God, I'm able to say to them, it's great. I mean, it's not, it's, we're in transition. It's, it's, it's different, but God's building his church still. People are committed. They weren't committed to a person. They were committed to a call to be a part of a people who are going to proclaim God's goodness in the town of Clay and Syracuse and the surrounding areas. And so it's the foundation of Jesus that has kept this church stable for these months. It's Jesus who receives the glory and the praise and the honor. And Jesus as our foundation also gives us a steady, sure uh, base when the world's going crazy. Is this world going crazy right now or what? This world is going crazy. When we, when we, it's crazy uh, in, in nature. It's terrible what's happening. The, the hurricanes in Texas and then Florida. We need to pray for Puerto Rico because, I mean, they don't have power and they may not have power for four to six months. 
My concern is that people have given to Texas and people have given to Florida and people have kind of given maybe all they can give. We need to dig deep and support and give and meet the needs there. There's craziness, the earthquake in Mexico. These are things that are happening. These are things that the Bible tells us will happen. And then I can't even get into the things that are happening around the world with our nations and, and all, of the, all of the tension and all of the questions that we have. And it's easy to be shaken and it's easy to look around and say, God, where are you in this? But you know what? God is in the same place that he's always been, sitting on his throne, reigning and ruling. And Jesus Christ is the foundation of the church, which is filled with the Holy Spirit. So our response, when we look around the world, our response is not to be shaken, but to look to Christ. You know what the church does when, when things go crazy? We, we stay faithful. That's what we do. We stay faithful to teaching and preaching God's word. We stay faithful to gathering. We stay faithful to our spiritual disciplines. We pray. We ask God. This is what we pray. The Bible tells us what to pray. Jesus, God, let your kingdom come on this earth as it is in heaven. Let your will be done on this earth as it is in, in heaven. And the final prayer of scriptures is, Jesus, come quickly in, in your will and your timing, your purpose. We, we pray these things. We stay on mission. We trust God. We obey God. And why, why can we do that thing when everybody else is running around like a chicken with their heads cut off or like chicken little who's screaming out that the sky is falling when everybody else is doing that how come how come we can stay faithful it's not because we're so wonderful it's because we have a sure foundation jesus is the cornerstone chosen and precious in god's eyes the last thing that we see in this text about the church that matters is this the church that matters has a god-given identity and a god-given activity both. A God-given identity and a God-given activity. You've seen spy movies, right? You've seen movies like Mission Impossible where they get their assignment on a little disposable uh, tape and it says this, self, this tape will what? Self-destruct in five seconds. And there's always this last line. This is your mission if you, if you choose to accept it. And when they give spies mission, they give them two things, usually. They give them a new identity right? They don't stay themselves. They get a new name, new passport, new identity, but they also get a new mission, a new activity. And Peter is saying, similar, the church, you have a new identity now, and you have a new activity. Let's see, look how he says, these are very famous verses, and let's read the last four verses of our passage together. Verse 9 is one of the most well-known passages in the scriptures. Peter says, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. That, that why? What's our, that's our identity. Here's our activity. Did you catch that? Here's our, that was our identity. Here's our activity. That you may proclaim the excellencies of him, the goodness of him, who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. We need to remember both of those. We need to remember that once we were not his people, but now we are his people. Verse 11, beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh. This is him again saying, don't have the old appetite, which wage war against your soul. And then verse 12, I love this. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you or want to speak against you as evildoers, they see your good deeds and they glorify God on the day a visitation. Now there's a lot there, but I want to go quick here. Peter starts by using four terms to describe the church. And each of these terms in verse nine is a, Tony, can we put verse nine up again? Each of these is an Old Testament description of Israel. 
So in a way, he's saying, you, are, you, you, you need to embody these things. These Old Testament descriptions of Israel are now applied to the church of Jesus Christ, and they're describing the church as a whole, not individuals. And look at each of them really quick. First, he says, you're a chosen race. It's obvious, right? You've been chosen. You didn't choose yourself. You didn't sign up on the dotted line. God chose you. You're a chosen race. And the church is not one specific race, so how can Peter say you're a chosen race? What he's saying is here, because in this culture, loyalty to your own ethnicity, loyalty to your own race, especially down the lines of Gentiles and Jews, was the biggest dividing thing. It was the most important thing that you would be loyal to your own people. And Peter here is saying, no, there's a, there's a new loyalty that supersedes all others. It's the church. It's the people of God. You're a chosen race. Then he says, you're a royal priesthood. You know what he does here? It's very interesting. With both words, he says, you couldn't have earned your way in. Because everybody knew royalty was not something you worked your way towards. It's not like America. There's no rags to riches stories back then. It's not like America where you could pick yourself up off the streets of the inner city and, and go work your way up to be a CEO of some company. That option wasn't, didn't exist back then. That's not how it worked. So if you're going to be royalty, you only had one chance of being royalty. You better be born into the right family. As soon as you were born, you were either royalty or you weren't, and nothing really was going to change that for the rest of your life. But you know what? It was true also of priesthood. Priesthood worked the exact same way. There was one tribe, the Levites. If you were born a Levite, you were a priest. If you weren't born a Levite, I don't care how holy, how good you were, how many Christian t-shirts you were, you were not going to be a priest. And so Peter is saying here, this is a matter beyond your natural abilities. This is something you've inherited that you don't deserve, but God's given it to you. This royal priesthood that you can come before God, accepted, and to get access. Then he says, you're a holy nation, which means you're a people that have been set apart. And holiness is not just about how we live our lives, but holiness actually means that we're being made whole. We're being restored into wholeness. And then the last one he uses is he says, a people for the possession of God, for his possession. And he's reemphasizing here, you belong. You belong to God. You don't belong to yourself. You belong to God. Here's what I want you to notice. Each of these four identities is connected to, it connects us to one another, right? Race, priesthood, nation, people. You can't do that alone. You can't do any of those alone, right? You need other people. So each of these connects us to each other, but each of these also connects us to God because it's his work. It's his choosing. He's the one who possesses us. And then he gives us the mission that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into light. A new identity and a new activity. And God has given us both. And what's the result? If we're a church that matters, what should happen? And Peter says it in verse 12. He says, if you're a church that matters, that even the people out there who want to speak evil of you, they can't. People who want to tear you down, people who want to say you're out of touch, that you don't care, that you don't make a difference, that you're mean, that you're arrogant, that you're self-righteous. The people out there who want to speak bad of you can't because of your honorable conduct. Church that matters is making a difference. And then you know what happens? It says that they will glorify God on the day of visitation. Now, what does that mean? There's actually a little bit of debate on this. It means one of two things. It either means that on the day of visitation, either means at the end of time, they're gonna glorify God. Because the Bible says that someday every knee will bow and every tongue will confess. But some commentators also say it actually probably means the day of their salvation, that when God visits them, they will be quick to glorify and respond to him. I don't know for sure which one it is. I probably lean more towards the day of their salvation because I think it's everybody's gonna glorify God on the final day 
of visitation, no matter what we've done or said as a church. Everybody's going to bow their knee. Everybody's going to confess. So for this to make the most sense, I think what Peter is saying here is that your honorable conduct will both prevent them from speaking evil of you, but it also will prepare their heart for their day of salvation. It's a powerful truth here. Let me close with this. As we're thinking about how can Trinity Assembly of God be a church that matters? Let me, let me close with this. 20 to 30 years after the last apostle died, 20 to 30 years after John died, we have a historical document. It's not in the Bible, but we have it. It's been passed down through history, and it's called the Letter of Mathetus to Diognetus. And someone named Mathetus is writing a letter to a guy named Diognetus. Now, neither one of these guys, according to history, are Christians. And here's what's happening. Diognetus reaches out to Mathetus and says, hey, I hear there's this new group of people called Christians. What are they like? Who are they? And Mathetus writes a letter to Diognetus, and he explains Christians. This is so powerful. I want you to hear how he explains them. It'll be on the screen for you as I read. Mathetus says, They dwell in their own countries, but simply as sojourners. As citizens, they share in all things with others, and yet they endure all things as if foreigners. Every foreign land to them as their native country, and every land of their birth as a land of strangers. They marry, as do all. They beget children, but they do not destroy their offspring. Because there is some child, uh, still child sacrifice in some cultures. Then. They have a common table, but not a common bed. Christianity had a radical new ethic when it came to sexuality and generosity. And, and, and Matthew is saying, they share their table, but they don't share their bed. The fact that he even had to say that reveals something about Rome in, in that time. They are in the flesh, but they do not live after the flesh. They pass their days on earth, but they are citizens of heaven. They obey the prescribed laws and at the same time surpass the laws by their lives. What a beautiful, what a beautiful description. They follow the rules. They keep the laws of government because scripture instructs us to. But they actually live lives that surpass the law. They love all men and are persecuted by all. They are unknown and condemned. They are put to death and restored to life. Now listen, this gets better. They are poor yet make many rich. They are in lack of all things and yet abound in all. They are dishonored and yet in their very dishonor are glorified. They are evil spoken of and yet are justified. They are reviled and they bless. They are insulted, but they repay the insult with honor. They do good, yet they're punished as evildoers. And when they're punished, they rejoice as if quickened into life. They are assailed by the Jews as foreigners and are persecuted by the Greeks, yet those who hate them are unable to assign any reason for their hatred. That's the church that matters. That's the church that matters. And the truth is, is on a whole, the American church, we're not there. Imagine an unchurched person writing a letter to another unchurched person today trying to describe what Christians are like. It wouldn't sound like that for the most part. And I'm not saying that there aren't plenty of believers who embody those truths. I'm saying as a church, we got a ways to go to be the church that matters. I heard a question one time that has haunted me since I heard it, and it was this. If your church stopped existing tomorrow, if these doors closed tonight and never opened again, if this building magically vanished, would the community notice? Would they miss us? Would they go, oh, wow, what are we going to do now? What a loss. They were doing this, they were doing that. I believe there are some, but there's always room for growth, right? 
There's always room for growth. And let's let that question stir us to activity, to be those who have new appetites, those who have a sure foundation, and those who have a God-given identity and a God-given activity. Let's pray together.